Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So while I was waiting for you, I've been playing a record, which I don't think I've played this century, Mark. And here it is. And and if you're only a Patreon supporter, you'd be watching this in glorious glowing colour as well as hearing it in stereophonic sound. That's the record I've just been playing, Mark. Oh, yes. Mist, Misty in Roots, live at the County Eurovision 79. Didn't you always used to say that was your favourite? Uh... No, I didn't, actually. I, 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 you may be confusing. No, it's Burning it Spear. With... I'm thinking of Burning Spear. Well, sorry. Burning Spear, I love Burning Spear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and there's also, probably from around about the same time, there's a fantastic Aswad live record, yeah. which made at the Nottingham Carnival, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah. Wonderful. Anyway, I was just listening to this and thinking what an extraordinary record it was. And uh, and I was listening particularly to a track, Judas Iscariot, and uh, and thinking, my God, that is just entirely Slavery Days by Burning Spear, which probably came out round about the same time. And, you know, you know, look at the two covers together, you know, yeah. same colour scheme and all kinds of things. And I was thinking further to the, we were talking the other week, you know, in the light of Ed Sheeran's uh, legal difficulties about how ludicrous it is to to try and pretend that all pop songs aren't related to each other and don't come from each other. How much is that the case when you look at reggae and you look at things like Misty and you look at things like artists like Burning Spear and, you know, I don't know, the Congos and, and loads of people yeah, like that? Because they're effectively, they are the same song. Sequences. Exactly. They, 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 I mean, not just the chord sequences, Mark, because the amazing thing is the lyrical content it's all very similar, you know, because because these these are kind of hymns, you know, they're sacred songs if you like, you know what I mean? It's not just a bit, you don't get songs about somebody, you know, fancying a girl or how Tuesday didn't go very well. No, for a member of Burning Spear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know, they're about they're about you know Rastafarian themes and so forth. So how much is that? You know, all pop music generally is just very closely related to. All other pop music, but how much more is that the case when you get something like Bernie Spears? It's absolutely extraordinary. Um, so yeah, that, that was a, I, I I'm remembering that out. the old Danny Kelly joke about the John Peel show play, play Misty and Roots for me. That was the kind of hilarious <laughs> late night DJ <laughs> gag. Oh, very good. <laughs> that was very going to be his, his biography title, I think, for yeah, a, a yeah. memoir about John Peel. <laughs> So we've been recording a number of things this week, and one of the things we recorded that I don't think it's gone out yet is uh, is a chat with uh, with the writer Andrew Mail, um, extraordinary um, charity shop out uh, you know stuff that he he he, he pulls in uh, you know on a regular basis, and we were looking looking at his records and and talking about his favourites and things, and where I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that. <laughs> He was talking about new boots and panties by Ian Dury, uh, and about how he's growing up with that, and how he became aware of the fact that you couldn't let Plasto Patricia play on that record if his parents were in the house, 
that's the case, isn't it? Because it famously begins with an extraordinary volley of, of obscenities. <laughs> Unbelievable. But, but actually, it's not that the whole album, if you think about it, is pretty astonishing, isn't it, in terms of what's on it? Because it's got, I mean, the, the original version, the original UK pressings and the American version had Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. These are records that you just can't imagine being played now. Wake no. Up and Make Love to Me. I mean, you know, that's 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 kind of near the edge. Bill and Ricky Dickey. It's more than near the edge, Mark. It's oh, my God. But here's the point. We didn't even think there was an edge then. No, we no, not remotely. That's the interesting thing, is that New Business and Pandies was, you know, a very big hit record. And I, I looked at uh, this morning at just how big a hit record it was. It came out in the middle of 1977. It went into the charts, the LP charts, in late 1977. It spent literally the whole of 1978 in the charts and half of 1979. So it was, and if you want to know whether a record really sells, don't judge whether it went to number one or not, because New Bits and Panties didn't go to number one. I think the highest it got was number eight. Um but look at instead whether something remains in the chart. It's if you remain in the chart, that's when you really sell a huge number of records. So that was that was selling in massive quantities. I, but, but I mean, everything else on it. You know, the track "Blockheads," even <laughs> "Blockheads." You must have seen parties of "Blockheads" with blotched and lagered skin. Blockheads with food particles in their teeth, what a horrible state they're in. I mean, even now, that specific attack on a particular stereotype probably would so. encouraged. You're, you're not allowed to ever go into anywhere. Blackmail Man at the end with the raspberry ripples. You remember that bubble and squeak? And I mean, oh, yeah. every single track on that record, pretty much, is full of some kind of obscenity or outrage. <laughs> Nobody at the time remarked on did they and it was sitting in how many thousands and thousands of households absolutely did, when did they play did they play it when the uh, when the kids were out did they play it when the kids were in and just say just ignore i mean i just don't know it's well, also it was also on sale in you know not just virgin and hmv it was on sale in boots and smiths completely know? was it saying there was no sticker as far as i can remember there was there was no kind of oh be careful with this record yeah, yeah, sticker yeah. that i can remember at all and i was just looking this morning at the original reviews uh, of the record you know, which just as I came out in mid 1977. So those reviews in, I was looking at Roy Carr's review in the NME and Vivian Goldman's review in Sounds and Tim Lott's review in Record Mirror. And they all kind of said the same thing, which is, well, this is extraordinary, but clearly it's not going to be a huge success. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nobody's, nobody's going to go for this kind of thing. No, it's not it's, commercial, it's a bit edgy. <laughs> it's, it's a bit street. They all said it was really good, but you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. it was clearly not going to be a big success. Well, it was absolutely a big success. But nobody at the time particularly thought of it as being wildly controversial. It was edgy, certainly. That was certainly the case. But, you know, there weren't, there weren't great think pieces about it. <laughs> about whether it was desirable, you know, in, in its kind of, in its yeah, attitude. Yeah. And it's, it's just absolutely extraordinary to think, you know. There's a there's a Hogarth exhibition on at the moment. I don't where's it on the Royal Academy on the Tate Britain, I think. And and it's had to be accompanied by by long uh, kind of academic explanations of the context out of which 
all these Hogarth works came, you know. And, what, Gin Lane? And, yeah, yeah. Well, and to very carefully distance themselves from the content. Yes, saying, yeah, yes yeah, we yeah. know. We know how shocking this is. Well, you know, isn't it a miracle that nobody's yet suggested that we should do that with new bits and panties? Yet. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. I know you just tweeted a thing about um, obscure rock biographies. And I was thinking at first of, of, of uh, the definition being often reasonably obscure groups and then by the, the most, the least prominent member of them. Like I remember reading a book by about Nico called Songs They Never Play on the Radio. I think you read it too by a guy called James Edward Young. Oh. Incredibly good. He was the keyboard player in this Nico group at a, time, a period of her life when they were kind of lurching from pillar to post. Incredibly uh, revealing and extraordinary. But the responses you got on your thing are, are mostly just really, really bizarre. Aren't they? Well, except I started, I'll tell you, I'll be honest with this. I'll tell you how this started. Yesterday, I was trying to think, somebody got in touch with me and said, why don't you do the Stackwaddy game anymore? And I said, well, you know, to be honest, we, we ran out of things. <laughs> ran out we of things ran out of categories. Yeah, absolutely. If you do, we try doing that. Try doing this for a year. We <laughs> so did, you we get, did 60 we of them. Scriptwriters, whatever. Two and, each, um, that's right. And uh, anyway, I was thinking yesterday, <clears throat> could I invent, there are obscure rock biographies, and could I come up with four obscure ones and then make up one and challenge you to see to if you could. Spot the ringer. Rock, spot the ringer. And uh, and I, I couldn't really get that very far with it, but I found that there were loads of obscure ones. And I started with L- The Lost Roller by Nobby Clark, <laughs> which Nobby Clark was the original lead singer and founding member of the Bay City Rollers. I didn't know this and, you know, did sing on, on the very early hits. But when, when the tartan came along and the scream started, Nobby was, was out. <laughs> Nobby was, was out, booted out, but that hasn't stopped him many years later. You know, uh, uh, penning his own uh, his own music, musical autobiography, and so I, I threw this open to, to the Mastiff and said, you know, can can people suggest you know obscure rock biogs and and also what's the most distant relationship you can possibly have between the author and the and the act to her, you and know, the supposedly. There are some absolutely brilliant examples, are there? I liked, I liked, I called him Babe. Elvis yes. Presley's nurse remembers. And Matt Hill, I think it was, who sent it in, said, spoiler alert, she bought him his placebos during a two-week stay at the Baptist Memorial Hospital. He bought her a Cadillac. <laughs> you know, you think, that's just brilliant. You know, anybody, and with John Lennon's exactly the same thing. With John Lennon, anybody that big, anybody even remotely associated with him, Writes a book. Lennon's maid at the Dakota wrote a book, didn't she? In um, Spanish, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> the Spanish market. The, uh, the Len, Len Hill wrote a book. whose main claim to fame, I think, he was the guy who introduced John Lennon to Long Tall Sally by Little Richard when they were at school, and that's his kind of. That's how I started John Lennon. That's a book. But it's, it's a book exactly, and a cheese sandwich for John Lennon. By Mary E. McMahon, McMahon yeah. which sounded absolutely amazing. She, her basic thing is that she—I mean, I've not read this, but she'd seen the Quarrymen a few times. She'd hung around Liverpool in the early days, and uh, I, I looked it up, and it says the book culminates with a hilarious chance meeting with a hungry young Beatle at Liverpool's Jacaranda Club, 
with a final and unexpected twist, obviously involving a cheese sandwich. I don't want to give there it away, go. but I mean, that's, that's the basis of a book. It's good. So obviously, obviously all the members of the Cory men must have written books at one yeah. time or another. But um, just like starting over, and I think this was, again, another one that Matt Hill sent in, um, which is subtitled John Lennon and the Quarrymen, My Teenage Years by Charles Roberts. And I think Charles Roberts, um, you know, association with that famous period is he's the person who took the photograph. Uh, of oh, John Lennon on the Walton back of the Faith. truck. Uh, you know, well, Faith. that's a that's a very strong card, I would say. It's a really strong card because nobody else can use that picture unless you unless they pay you for yeah, yeah, yeah. to using yeah. it. You know, so he's no doubt he's no, no 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 doubt protected it throughout the years. But got loads of them. Third Empire. This is the name on Twitter. Who sent in psychedelic confessions of a primal screamer? Oh, that's by fantastic! Martin, by Martin Johnston, who it was, it was their early tambourine. Tambourine player. player. It's just so great. And there's kind of well, there's only one picture of him, I think, in the band playing his tambourine, and there he is on the cover, tambourine very much to the fore. Absolutely. And he said that things were simmering away in the background. There's petty bickering, new girlfriends, members being sacked, our wages all being spent on an aborted LP. So I think he actually walked in the end. I thought that's the story of every group, but you know. That is a pretty tenuous link, isn't it? But some of these, I really, I kind of, I kind of want to read actually, because I'm not, I'm not disrespecting these things. Because no, no, I often, love, I love the idea. Very often, the little obscure memoir. Very often, there's a thing that's got the little, uh, the nugget in. Yeah, absolutely. That you won't find anywhere else. Who was it? I was looking at one here for, um, yeah, Greg Diamond uh, suggested this. Uh, there's a book by Jacob Slichter. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Called So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star. And he was the drummer with Semisonic. <laughs> so I like I, I like the idea that the, the drummer with Semisonic wrote a book. And it's probably it probably tells you something you wouldn't find anywhere else. The, Ian drummer, the drummer with Budgie wrote a book. The oh, Ray Phillips story. The, and the, and the oh, yes. Title, I think it's the Ray Phillips story, an awful biography of a great life from Budgie to Tredegar and beyond. <laughs> This is the man who, who, who I think left the group and then formed a group called Six Ton Budgie, didn't he? Wasn't that the guy? Oh, did he really? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think oh, that's there's a million and one stories. Ian Webster nominates um, a book called Mr. S, which in this is quite <laughs> interesting because this is this is subtitled, and you know the subtitle is always the key thing in publishing. Yeah, yeah. Subtitles are what they're bothered about more than anything else. Mr. S, My Life with Sinatra by George Jacobs, his valet. Now, and so Ian is saying, how interesting could that be? I'm saying very, very, very interesting indeed. Actually, I know about uh, that. That's the one that's got all the stuff about all these love affairs, isn't it? Ava is it really? Of course. Yeah, because if you're the the, the valet, the valet, or whatever, you know, you're, you're, you're there, right? At the, you know, you're watching this guy getting ready to go out. You're probably ferrying him about. You know, every element. You know. Well, where's the, the famous old French saying, no man is a hero to his valet? Oh, because <laughs> because they, they know. They know. They know more than their mates. They, they you know, the, 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 the people who put them to bed at night and get them yeah. up in the morning. They, 
you know, they are incredibly close to them. I, so, like, I like the one that I think it was Nick Barber mentioned one called Boy Interrupted. It's a great title, actually, by oh, Taylor yes. Hibbert. Taylor Hibbert, original member of the Smiths. And uh, I looked that one up too. He said uh, he's an, Im- an embittered original Smiths member, takes aim at his former bandmates in his new biography and manages to outgloom Morrissey. I thought this is completely in keeping with the general tenor of the, the group. They're all kind of desperately having a go. But he obviously just couldn't couldn't deal with the fact he couldn't fathom this guy says as why he was usurped by Andy Rourke because he thought his performances on both tape and live were very very strong this is the man who made their demos public so uh, I can see why the other members of the group might have fallen out with him but I mean I, I think it's quite interesting that he wrote there wasn't kind of just hilarious tales from the days in the Smiths it was kind of a, I'm aggrieved I should still be in there absolutely know? Which yeah. is it probably, probably similar. Another one that's um, been uh, nominated is the Dallas Taylor book. Oh, Did you yeah, see yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Dallas Crosby Taylor, who played, played yeah. drums with Crosby, Stills, yeah. Nash and Young. And it's called Prisoner of Woodstock. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly why. I have to read it to find out why. Yeah. But it suggests he somehow, he resents the fact that people just... They just want him for Woodstock, I suppose. You know, rather than as he ought to be doing, thanking his lucky stars. All those years later, people people still remember. And gets his name on the front of one of their albums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then then I've been intrigued by trying to find out more about this. There is a book called "The Man Who Said No to the Beatles." (laughs) There's a guy. P, he is to give him his full title. He was a kind of Manchester musician. He was mate of, you know, all these bands and the yeah. Hollies, the Beatles and so forth. And he's obviously making the most of the fact that he has a really good picture on the cover, which is an old shot taken of him with arms around Paul McCartney back when they, when they were young. So it's the book is called The Man Who Said No to the Beatles, and he goes by the name of Pete Jamside Down McLean. As if to, to indicate that whereas, you know, luck has, Lady Luck has smiled upon other people, for Pete McLean, Lady Luck did not smile at all. And the toast always landed jam side down. So, you know, 50, 60 years but later. But then he did, did say no to being in the Beatles. So he only has himself to blame. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. So uh, Bono's poem which has caused all manner of <laughs> consternation. Uh, unsurprisingly, actually, uh, on St. Patrick's Day, that was read out by Nancy Pelosi, uh, the House Speaker, um, at a, a, an event. It was the, what was it, the annual Friends of Ireland lunch in Washington. <laughs> and they're all Friends of Ireland, all are they? American, Ireland, yeah. American politicians, to a man or a woman, yeah. they're all Friends of Ireland. They'll come from Ireland. Very keen to be associated. I mean, my theory about this is, I know it's not, I know it's not a great poem, but my theory is I don't think he ever intended this to be made public. Well, okay. Well, that's that's the case. I think he probably sent that. Read us it, Mark. I will, well, this, I I will, I've actually got it here. Bizarrely, it's three, it's kind of three limericks. I mean, it is pretty shockingly awful, but okay, here it is. It goes, Oh, St. Patrick, he drove out the snakes with his prayers, but that's not all it takes. For the snake symbolizes an evil that rises and hides in your heart as it breaks. And the evil has risen, my friends, 
my friends is a terrible phrase, isn't it? It's been like saying, and or so I have read, you know, the evil has risen, my friends, from the darkness that lives in some men. But in sorrow and fear, that's when saints can appear to drive out those old snakes once again. Slight lyrical trip up there. Yeah, surely. Got I know, one I know. too Look, many syllables. Oh, there's, another, there. cl- there's a classic coming on, up now. The last verse is, and they struggle for us to be free from the psycho in this human family. Oh. I know, I know, I know. Ireland's sorrow and pain is now the Ukraine and St. Patrick's name now Zelensky. I mean, that's, the, my feeling is, <laughs> I think he sent that to Pelosi and said, I just wrote something this morning and, you know, and she, I think she ran with it. Would she have said to him, I am going to read this out at the lunch. And if she read it out at the lunch, it would then become public property. I don't know. Would he have actually said, please read this out. I would like it to go public. I think it's unlikely in his defence, because it is a pretty extraordinary thing, isn't it? My question to you is, Mark, why does everybody, everybody on God's earth, think that at one time or another they can write poetry? This is it because you wouldn't. Yeah, say same thing article. doesn't apply. We don't no, if you've paint, never written a poem paint. before, you wouldn't say, "Right, I'm now going to write poetry." You wouldn't say, "I'm going to write a song about this," but you've never written a song before. I'm going to paint a picture. You can't paint. <laughs> it is. I mean, it seems to be. I mean, how hard can it be? It's just a few words. They scan. They rhyme. Oh, you know. I know. And that was, you know, I, I, another question I put out on Twitter this week is, you know, re Bono, how many? pop stars have ever written a poem worth you know half worth listening to and of course you know you get the usual responses you get leonard cohen and stuff well, leonard, but leonard cohen was a poet, before, was really, a poet. Yeah, he's, he's a more, poet, a, more a poet than a musician absolutely um pj you know, harvey's written some good poems uh, nick nick cave as well but then that's the kind of you know that's the kind of uh multi-faceted entities they are um not many is the answer isn't it no no but somehow what the interesting thing is is uh People always think that poetry is the is the appropriate medium to express something that they feel really strongly about. Yeah, it's the supercharged medium, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's why so, should that so be the soulful case? and so tragic. Yes. I'm gonna to have to write a poem. Only poetry will suffice. Yeah, only poetry <laughs> will do it. You know, and um yeah, we, we've all, you know, we've all read a million and one poems written on the back of album covers when we were young and foolish and thought, wow, that's really profound. And then you read a few years later, no, 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 please not. Um, so I don't know if, if Bono's uh, poem will be having, you know, the, um, the immortality really and no, no doubt seeks. But I don't think he's, I've not seen that posted anywhere apart from by her. So my yeah, feeling possibly. is she just went ahead and did it because she was kind of showing off about the connection that she might have yeah. with the fact that Bono, she's basically saying, Bono sent me an email this morning. Bono, there you go. That's, there a, you that's go. In, in his defence. That's what that's all you need in this day and age, isn't it? And you, yeah, you, yeah, you've yeah. suddenly got a load of, load of publicity for whatever yeah. your St. Patrick's Day lunch was. Talking of loads of publicity, did you see the story about Amy Mann being um, yeah, I did, yeah. removed from the Steely Dan we still call it a Steely Dan tour, even though it's it's Donald Fagan, really. But you know that's that obviously sells tickets. Um, and and she said that that she was bounced from the tour because they didn't want a woman or something else. They didn't think 
I think a female performer would be the right thing for a Steely Dan tour. She I find that hard to believe too. I so, find that really, really. I'm, I think I'm, it made me quite cross that actually. Actually, it made me slightly cross that she was the person to allege that that was the case. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was pretty. I think that's slightly unprofessional. Actually, I'm sorry, and I think it very unlikely because if that's what they thought in the highly unlikely event, then yeah. they would have worked out the principles upon which, upon which they book support acts, and everything would have to be, you know, cleared and ticked off by everybody involved. You wouldn't suddenly book somebody for a tour and then suddenly think, but hang on, we can't have her because we already agreed. You know what I mean? That we've got uh, principles about that kind of act. I thought that was very unlikely. I'm sorry. It's, uh, yeah, I think that I think she may have just she may have just misspoke, as they say, in some interview or something like that. She may. Have I thought, think so. I just can't resist but saying the whole this. support act thing. It, it really fascinates me actually because there have been occasions where people kind of blew off the headline act, didn't they? You know, Led Zeppelin yeah. and uh, yeah. Vanilla Fudge and. Little Feet and the Doobies, which I think you saw, didn't you? Didn't you see yeah, that? Yeah, you did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Queen and Mott the Hoople and people like that. But, I mean, that's that's because they're roughly in the same idiom and so you could compare them. They're, they're, they're all rock and roll acts, you know. I think the really clever thing is getting a support act. Like, I remember seeing the Stones in 1976 supported by the group The Meters. Do you remember The Meters? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're a funk group. And, and they were fantastic. But you couldn't, you couldn't really compare them because they were a different kind of group. And, uh, and and that that I think is part of the trick, isn't it? But like, otherwise, you, you get someone who's in your kind of video, and then you try and make sure that they're never too good by not giving it, them a decent in, sound check. Inter interesting thing about the Rolling Stones, I don't think anybody ever talks about nowadays. In the days when they had support acts, and I'm, I suppose I'm talking about the seventies, really. Yeah. They were always they were always black support acts. They just always were. Stevie Wonder. Yeah, Stevie was, Wonder. Was the, was the well, sport, they had the Prince record. before anyone had ever heard of him. Oh, Prince did they? Okay. About, uh, they know, uh, certainly had the meters. And um, didn't they have Icantina Turner support them at yeah, one probably. point? Yeah. Um, and, you know, there was a very definite kind of um, gesture on the part of Mick Jagger. You know, this is this is what we come from kind of thing. Absolutely. Know? That's all credit to Yeah, no, fair enough. And uh, actually, you might say rather courageous allowing Stevie Wonder to go on before you. But yeah, Stevie Wonder was quite, quite, uh, you know, grateful really at well that point because he was, he wanted to get to that audience which, yeah, which he'd yeah. never gotten to before. So, um, so yes, Amy Mann may have just come a little far. Can I contrast Amy Mann's uh, handling of uh, uh, PR in the last week with Dolly Parton's? Oh, I know that was fantastic. Dolly Parton's, Dolly Parton's decision <laughs> to do the only sensible thing anybody can ever do about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is to say when she hears that they're they're thinking of, of inducting us, is to say, "No, thank you, chats." I really don't want to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't think I deserve it. <laughs> I thought that was fantastic. So she gets the maximum publicity yeah. value out of it with no embarrassment whatsoever. And she comes out of it wonderfully. I thought that was really great. It's I mean, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame have had all sorts of people who, who aren't terribly rock and rolling before, haven't they? Uh -huh. James, they're, they're ABBA, 
Uh, Laura Naro, Darlene Love, Carol King, Nina Simone. I mean, they have they have tried. You can see. Well, they're, they're always them. just for them. It's a really, really good publicity thing to get Dolly Parton. I thought it was just brilliant. I thought it was just brilliant <laughs> that she, she turned it down, and she said, "Maybe I should try and make a rock and roll album, and then then I'd qualify." You know, she's absolutely. Did you see that heckle the other day? She's on tour at the moment. Somebody tweeted about somebody, some drunk burst in the audience, shouted out, "I love you, Dolly." And shouted back, I love you too, but I thought I told you to stay in the trunk, which is a really, <laughs> a really good, really good <laughs> response. It was, it was, my, fa- Jackson, my favorite was one. Jackson ever. Brown used to do the old, uh, used to go and see Jackson Brown, and there was always some woman, there would always be some yeah. woman in any audience, just couldn't contain herself. And usually a woman in her 50s or <laughs> with you know a serious job and responsibilities. Yeah, yeah. and a husband level. looking very embarrassed. She go, I love you. And he used to go, I think it's best we don't meet each other. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna say it. My mother's here again. <laughs> no, my, my favorite ever uh, heckle I remember was John Cooper Clark, somebody shouting out something incredibly rude at him on stage and he said to he said your bus leaves in 10 minutes be under it which i thought was really <laughs> so we've been reading the roger daltrey interview in the times because he's publicizing his uh, he's got teenage cancer trust um benefit shows which he's he, be fair roger daltrey is you know putting a huge amount of work on the teenage cancer trust over the years and raised an enormous amount of money and he and he and pete townsend are doing a kind of who acoustic um set i think anyway <laughs> gave it a few uh, uh to the times which reminded us <laughs> just how many children he's got it's complicated isn't it <laughs> it's very wasn't he talking about his 50th wedding anniversary now, oh, at least. And he won't mind the same, but you know, most people's 50th wedding anniversaries are, are, are not uh, in, in any way tainted by the fact that, that, that they have had three children, so three daughters, hasn't he? In uh, what were described as arrived separately and unexpectedly in his life after he got married in 1971. So that's complicated he, in itself. Well, he got married, he got married first of all. I think he, I think he didn't he have to get married when he was, yeah, married. he's married when he, he, in the mid 60s, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah in the mid 60s. And um, and then I think he lived in a, didn't he live in a house or something paid for by her father or something who then found him uh, found him straying shall we say That's right. and then chucked him out and so he was out of house and home this is before the who had made it and 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 the who didn't want him anymore because he'd had a fist fight with Keith. When he ended up living in his car or something, he lived in they lived in the van. <laughs> and it was pretty much you've got nowhere to live. You're out of the group. You're out of the family. You got no work. Got no nothing. And then at the last minute, they kind of the who took him back. Nobody else took him back. The who took him back, and then everything came afterwards. You know, but yes, his his wife, as you say, for more than fifty years, is um, Heather, an American. Yeah. Who was who was clearly been well, apart from the fact that she's been a wife for fifty years, enormously forgiving. Yeah, can I just another thing about Heather is she's the person who told him to stop mucking about with his hair. That's right. That's right. And she was because he used to put kind of well, it wasn't gel. What I don't know, some kind of treatment to give it to stick it down in the kind yeah. of mod fashion. 
And then when she was, she spent the night with him in a hotel and he, he woke up and she woke up to find him with this glorious explosion of curls kind of thing, which she'd never seen before because this had always been secreted beneath this kind of, um, you know, it looked like, um, looked like a child's toy's helmet. Um, <laughs> and she said, why don't you just leave your hair like that? Which he did ever since. And at that point, he became a sex bomb. That's right. Simple as that. She, she I know I know it's hard to, to understand for younger listeners, but there was a time in the 70s, Roger Daltrey, major sex bomb. Major, could, huge sex bomb. Could not be persuaded to to perform uh, wearing a shirt ever. So um, are the rock stars with eight children? Are the other rock stars with eight yeah, children? Paul Weller. Oh, really? Go on. I think Paul Weller's got eight children. I think so. I think by four different women. I'm pretty sure. Rod Stewart's certainly got eight children, is not he? Did you, talking to Rod Stewart, did you see him um, supposedly mending the road yes. near, near yeah, his yeah, place yeah. in Essex? Yeah. With, because with, uh, with, uh, with uh, some gravel patels. that he, he, he uses to gargle with. Who was it you said that on the radio? That's <laughs> very, very funny. There were some potels near his, uh, near right. his castle in Essex, and uh, he couldn't get the council to fix it, so he obviously, he, he's Rod Stewart, so he could afford to get a contractor to come and fix it. And so for publicity value, he went out there and put on a kind of high-vis jacket. High-vis jacket, exactly. I thought it was really good. And but he's also wearing a clearly an absolutely box fresh pair of trainers, which you lit you would the last thing you would ever don prior to going out working with a, a rogue cat I know, I know, I know. on a wet day in Essex. He was clearly just there for the photo opportunity. So major uh, leader in the children's stakes. Also, apart from uh, Mick Jagger, obviously, who I think has, has eight kids, doesn't he? Five different women. Bob Marley. How many kids is Bob? Oh Marley? yeah, I'll go on that. Eleven. Oh yeah. 11 children, <laughs> one of which born just soon after he died. So it's well, see, yeah, but if you are, you know, if you're Bob Marley or, you know, Mick Jagger or, or whoever, and, and you're, you're, you've got a lot of money to leave, <laughs> you find yourself with a lot of children, I would have thought. They come out of the woodwork, don't they? You know what I mean? Hey, well, very, often, very often after people die, is oh, I, you know, I, we had an assignation in a broom cupboard in Stuttgart in 1974 yeah. or whatever. You owe me two, two million. <laughs> yeah, I'd like I like the rights to Ruby Tuesday, please. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Roger Daltrey, his children range from 41 to 58. 58. I know. Isn't that amazing? And uh, yeah, and but he's uh, got how many grand? He's got 15. 15 grandchildren. grandchildren. The youngest two and a half, the oldest twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. <laughs> so he's not he's very likely to be a great grandparent soon. It's fantastic, isn't it? The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink, and it's like being in the pub. I've been enjoying reading uh, Stephen Wilson's book, it's limited really good, edition of one. <laughs> yeah, we're talking to him this week, and I don't really know much about him. But oh, in fact, I didn't know anything about him. But I found it really interesting. Really interesting. Just really fresh and kind of. Enthusiastic and it's a well, it's a rare example of a memoir that's entirely mapped out through music, isn't it? Nearly always, yeah. this, I failed my eleven plus. I had a disastrous relationship with a girlfriend, and, yes. and I hated my father. It's it's all about records, all about seeing records, hearing records. Yeah, the only bit where he says he was born on um, uh, November nineteen sixty seven. He said the most significant thing about his birth was the fact that 
Pink Floyd had just finished recording Paint Box in a studio just a few miles away. That's the thing that mattered most to him. I thought it was yeah. really touching, actually. I like he that. He was, he was, he was like you. He's a huge fan of uh, the Dukes of Stratosphere record. Yes. And he formed a kind of Stratosphere group, didn't he, with Darth and Dave. Yeah, and he was just obsessed with them. And um, But I think he said when he went and made his first Porcupine Tree record, he wanted to send it to Andy Partridge, but he didn't have his address. And then in the book, he says, I suppose I could have sent it to Andy Partridge, XTC, Swindon, and it would have found him. And I was reading this this morning. I thought, yeah, it probably would, actually. <laughs> I'd have thought to myself, does that apply right across the board? If you sent a letter, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to expose anybody to loads of junk mail or anything. If you sent a letter to Elton John, Windsor, would it get to him? I think it, it probably would. It would, it would wouldn't would. it? Absolutely. You know, just I don't know. Chris With anybody Rea, in that area, it's the one right. house that you know, you know who lived there, wouldn't you? You know, Rod, Rod Stewart, Essex. He'd probably find it, wouldn't he? Yeah. Whether whether he look at it or not. It would get there. You get know. So is there anybody out there, you know, involved in the postal service who can tell us how this actually works? Because, you know, if you I mean, because you got you got you got postmen nowadays. I mean postmen, postmen are brilliant. Postmen know everything. They obviously know everybody on their patch, don't they? Yeah. And so, you know, Rod Stewart's postman knows where Rod Stewart lives, doesn't he? You know what I mean? It just it will find its way to him really simply without any need for postal codes or anything of that kind. It would do, and uh, yeah, I think that probably applies right across the board. And it it doesn't just apply with really big names. It probably applies with cultish names as well. You know what I mean? That um, stuff just finds its way there. So if you've got any experience of this or um, specialist. Familiarity with this whole this whole uh, question. We we'd like to hear from you. We want we? to hear. We want to know. Uh, I tell you what we should mention too is is um, is uh, when we were talking to Andrew Mayle the other day. He was talking about gigs he went to see in the was it the early eighties? I think. Did I think he went to see Curtis Mayfield? Didn't he? It did. And there were twenty five people there. Twenty five. Extraordinary people. that there were only twenty five people there. And then we were saying, well, actually, in the early eighties, given the choice between seeing a legend and seeing the next big thing. You tended to go for the next big thing, didn't you? You did. You did. I, think it's, I think it's interesting for lots of reasons. One is if you, you know, if you were in, you'd read about Echo and the Bunnymen and the music press, whatever. The main thing is you didn't really, if they hadn't been on top of the pops, you wouldn't know what they looked like. You know, you couldn't just click and see these people in action. To satisfy that curiosity, you'd actually have to go and see them. And also, the whole idea of legends, acts that are now considered to be legends, the Stones and McCartney and Elton and the Who and Queen, Paul Simon, James Taylor, you know, uh, that hadn't happened, had it, in the early no. 80s. They, they, no, no, they no. were just, to a lot of people, kind of old and in the way. And they, going, they were cluttering know. up the place. That's the only legends like. I remember at the time were mostly blues legends. I remember going to see B.B. King in 1979 and seeing um, Muddy Waters as well and John Lee Hooker. And uh, I saw Chuck Berry. I can remember thinking, these people are kind of legends. And also Bob Marley. Bob Marley somehow instantly, you had the feeling that you ought to go and see him. But otherwise, that whole idea. So now, if, you're, if you've got the choice between seeing the next big thing and somebody who, who might be on their farewell tour, 
you're a bit torn, aren't you? Because you think, well, I've, I'm, that's an opportunity I may not ever get again. It's also people use the, the expression legend nowadays about they use it really freely and Absolutely. i don't think people used to at all you know yeah yeah yeah. so if i you know talk to my any of my children or whatever they talk about musicians they wouldn't necessarily know but they're aware of the fact that they're legends you know Yes, absolutely. Well, they feel they ought well, to go they, and see them. They ought to go and see them. They ought to know about them. Or, so you, you get know. that terrible spectacle of gigs of, of sons and daughters being dragged along by usually by fathers yeah, saying, yeah. you have it, to see this. And the other yeah. thing is that you didn't have that idea that people were pioneers. You know, now, Kraftwerk, you have to come and see Kraftwerk because they are the great template for electronic dance music. You know, uh, Iggy Pop, Stevie Wonder, James Brown. But, you know, uh, and... and uh, and then they weren't, were they? They were just they were just somebody on their sixth album or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. The first the first major farewell tour I can remember was Tina Turner, which I think was probably in the late eighties. She embarked on her on her final tour. <laughs> at that point, I know, I know, probably still going, I just imagine. I saw I saw a piece of I was reading a piece about the Rolling Stones this morning that they've given a lot of money to the Disasters Emergency Committee. Yeah. And hats off to them, um, and uh, and they're described by Hacko McHack, who's writing this piece as the Start Me Up Rockers. Oh, <laughs> oh no, no! Oh god! No. But I suppose probably that yeah. to most people, that's their most. Well, the word, the word, the word, massive on the website. I always used to refer to the Beatles as, as the was it the, was it the the, the the Hey Jude hitmakers. <laughs> <laughs> the HJH, actually, they were just known as the Beatles. Just That's the true. It's so funny. That's true. I know, I know. So, if you've got any more suggestions in, in that uh, in that vein, get in touch. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.